I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 15. This will be our last week in Romans 15, and I feel it's gone fast. I don't know about you, but um, I feel it's flown by. But then again, we've been in Romans for how many years? So (laughs) you may think it's dragging on, but I'm enjoying every single word. Um, And and on on that is today I'm going to zoom out on the chapter. I'm going to zoom out on chapter 14 and 15 because going word for word or phrase by phrase, sometimes we just get lost in that one little thought and forget that it's a part of something bigger. It's a part of this entire letter. It's not just one thought here and one thought there. They are all connected by God's purpose. And so this morning I'm going to uh, read chapter 15 in in its entirety And then we're going to place it in the whole of the book and see exactly how it goes in this letter. Because it seems, when we read chapter 14 and 15, they seem out of place uh, to this book. And so I'm going to read for us chapter 15 in its entirety, if you want to follow along, so I don't lose you. And at least this time I have the right chapter. Not like what I read earlier, so. This is God's Word. Hear what it says. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to the rule of the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you, and, uh, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied with you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with all the knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have, uh, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace that God has given to me. To be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have a reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power and the, uh, sorry, by the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. 
And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make the contribution to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also be of service in their material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this, and I have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints." so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Amen. So I, I say that these chapters kind of fit oddly into the book because if you know the book of Romans, you've been following along for five or six years, whatever we've been in it, you know it's a book of doctrine, a book of teaching, a book of deep Abiding truth, truth that changes us, truth that corrects us, truth that sanctifies us, and teaching of who man is, what God's like, what man's plight is if he never changes, what God has done about it, and then how his people are changed by it. And then you come to chapter 14, which is just really practical on the ground, you know, very horizontal about your relationship with the body of Christ. And then chapter 15, it almost seems like it's a lot of greetings, but as we took it week by week, you see it was more than just greeting, that there was so much packed into what Paul was saying. He wasn't just asking for prayers, and he wasn't just asking for money on a journey. You see the heart of God in Paul for the unreached, those who've never heard of Jesus. You see the heart of God in Paul for those who are poor and needy. You see the heart of God in Paul for Christian fellowship. You see all of this, even in chapter 15, which, if you read it quickly, seems like a, just a goodbye note. But it's not that. And so uh, we're going to embark on chapter 16 following this week, which seems even less relevant to us as Christians. It's just a bunch of names, just a bunch of people listed. But as we will discover, there is so much to glean from these people and their example that they set in Christ for us. But I want to take a look at the, the interesting fact of how chapter 14 and 15 get plugged in today. In chapter 14, it's all about unity. And not just unity for the sake of unity, not just so that you can get along or feel good about yourself or that people may say, oh, those, those people are a friendly bunch. That was not the point of the unity in chapter 14. The point of the unity had a divine purpose. It says, it even begins chapter 14... And I would argue that the chapter kind of carries into 15, but it begins by speaking of welcoming people, and we see it's because Christ has welcomed them. 
chapter 14 begins that way. Let the one who is weak, uh, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. Do not quarrel over opinions. Don't judge them. For God, end of verse 3, for God has welcomed him. And so this is a, an appointed chapter for us in a society, in a world that is trying to create a division between every person and every family member about your opinion about this or that. Everyone's got an opinion now. And the, the greatest tool of the enemy is to put a wedge because of those opinions, to put a wedge in between the, the family God or, or marriages or families, but especially the people of God to say, oh, you have a different opinion of, of me uh, about this whole pandemic? Well, man, I, I don't even know if I can come in the same room as you. Like, oh, can we do this? It, it's unbelievable the power of a difference, right? And, and Paul knew that. That's not something new. It's not something that's now just starting to divide the church. It has divided people from the beginning of time. It's because we are selfish people, and we always will be. And, and so we want what we want, and our opinions are the right opinions, and it's known every text of scripture we think about unity, it's because we need it. We need it because we want our opinions to reign. And obviously we hold our opinions uh, not just blindly. And so the problem comes is in a church environment where there's opinions that begin to divide people and say, well, I can't even worship with them. And I don't even know if they're a Christian because they, they hold that opinion. And so that's what chapter four was all about was the unity of the diverse people of God. You come from different backgrounds, different ages, different interests, different theological understandings about the end times. It, it all is, there's, there's these huge differences. In chapter 14, the, the church in Rome, it was specified that they disagreed on holy days. They disagreed on diet. When it came to their spiritual living, it wasn't just about were they vegetarian or not. It, it was they thought it honored God to not eat this or that. And so it was all about the honor of God's name, and the unity of his church. Because the unity of his church points to the unity of the God who reigns over his church. God is a triunity, the trinity. God is three in one. Three persons, one God, one heart, one mind, one goal. There's but one God. And so when the church is divided, we preach something totally different about God. He, he is desired from the beginning of his people for them to be one so that they would represent him well. They would show the oneness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so the, the point of the unity and the point of the chapter 14 was welcome them. D despite their opinions, despite the disagreements you may have on a million things, welcome them. And, and if you seem to think that you're the one who's stronger in the faith, then you lay down your opinions for a minute and let them do it. If that's going to honor God in their life, then you think you're strong in the faith? Lay down your, your desires for the sake of a brother so that they may flourish in their faith, encourage their faith. That was the point of chapter 14, which flows out of this book of doctrine. And doctrine and teaching doesn't just end in the head. It goes to the heart, and it flows to the people around you. It's supposed to transform you. And so chapter 14 is this transforming power. It's a reminder of the transforming power of the gospel, that you're not to put yourself first anymore. Christ is supreme, and his people are his people. So you put them first, not your own heart's desires. It, it was about unity because it was about 
God. It, it mentions how uh, there at the end of verse 3, for God, the reason is for, for God has welcomed him. You welcome people because God has welcomed them. And then it says at the end of verse 9, for, Christ, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the living and the dead. His lordship is the reason that we ought to strive for unity and, and focus on the things that matter. Not, not the secondary opinions, but the things that are not going to divide us, the things of the gospel. And, and then it says in, verse 14, in chapter 14, verse 12, so then let each of us give an account to God, each of us. It's a reminder that you are not, uh, you are not the person beside you, but you will stand before the throne of God and give an account for all that he has given you and, and what you have done with it. Have you used the mouth that he has given you to slander a brother or sister in Christ? Have you used the, the hands that he has given you to push away the people that he has called his sons and his daughters? Each of us will give an account to Christ. And then it says, verse 13, Therefore, let none of us pass judgment on anyone any longer, on each other one any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block of hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 19 says, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And it's incredible that ties into chapter 15 when Paul talks about his desire to go to Rome. He wants to go for encouragement and upbuilding, mutual upbuilding. Well, that's never going to happen in an environment where all you do is bicker about opinions, where all you want to do is argue about secondary things. You're never going to have mutual upbuilding. One person's going to felt upbuilt and another person's going to felt torn down. And that is not the family of God. And so then it goes into chapter 15 there and it says, um, verse 5, So may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice, here's the reason we want unity, so that we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. God will be defamed. People will think less of God when God's people tear each other down. And for the glory of God's name, for the admiration that he deserves, we would strive to welcome one another we would strive to live in such harmony by God's power and by His grace that we would put ourselves aside for the sake of others so that we may uniquely serve. And then that's where uh, chapter 15 comes in. The, the idea of Paul wanting to serve the church, not just at Rome, but the church in Jerusalem, the church that he hopes in unreached lands. He hopes to go to Spain. You see Paul desiring this unique nature of what he thinks the gospel does to transform people. It gives them an ambition, a holy ambition. We talked about, Paul says, I make it my aim. I make it my ambition is to preach Christ where he has never been named. And we talked then, well, what is your ambition for God and Christ? What has he given you as an ambition? What goals do you have in order to glorify him? Where has he called you to go? To whom? Where? To what kind of people? Because it's when we are focused on striving after serving God that we don't really care about the secondary opinions. 
If I have a brother or sister who's able to help me carry the burden of the gospel, I don't care if we disagree on the, the end times. I don't care if we disagree on uh, spiritual gifts. If they are a brother or sister in the Lord and they can help me carry the burden of the gospel to these people that I have an ambition for, we will go. We will go. And we will do it for the glory of God together. This, how do these two chapters then fit into this book as a whole? The whole book can be summarized by, it's a book about God's righteousness. God's righteousness. That's the entire book of Romans is God's righteousness. We see his righteousness beginning in the law, where he talks about the law that is written on our hearts and how we are rebels to that law, how we push back against that law, and how then we will be held accountable to that law and accountable for that rebellion. Our sin is damning in our lives. There's wrath stored up against us because we have broken God's law. We have trespassed against him where he says, don't step over the line. We say, I don't care. We do it day in and day out from our sinful inclinations, our sinful hearts, attitudes, and actions. And the law convicts us of that. It tells us of that, and it shows us where we have gone wrong. And chapters 1 through 3 of Romans really explain that. It shows what happens when we just let our hearts run wild, when we think, I get to do whatever I please. And God says, okay, you think your heart's the smartest thing out there? Go ahead. I'm going to give you over the desires of your flesh. And you see what happens in Romans chapter 1. You see the devastation that, that plagues the people who are turned over to their own desires. They just keep on sinning. And they approve those who keep on sinning. And the wages of sin is death. Death, eternal separation from the favorable presence of God, hell. And not just fire and torment and physical pain and not just emotional pain, but separation from the God you know you need. There is no more mercy in hell. That's what we are owed. That's what the beginning of this God, this, this book of Romans teaches us that God's righteousness is displayed in his law. His law is perfect. He sets the standard for perfection. God is holy, holy, holy in every way. And yet we are not. So it presents a humongous problem for us. It prevents the, the issue of our unrighteousness that none of us is righteous. Not one. Not one person seeks after God. Romans 1, at the end in verse 32, says, Though they know God's righteous decree, it's written on our hearts, we know what is right and wrong. And it says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They deserve to die. The wages of sin. We have earned death and separation from God eternally because of our sinfulness, because of the wickedness within us. Romans 3, none is righteous. And Romans chapter 6 tells us that we, we once, Romans chapter 6 is then speaking in past tense, but it speaks of the reality of the human being. It says, we once presented our members, our, every piece of our body, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness. And you know that's true in others, but you know it's true in yourself, right? If you tell one lie or you expand on one story, you have to tell another lie to cover the lie. 
to cover that lie for the rest of your life. You better hope you get your lies straight. Lawlessness in our hearts leads to more lawlessness. We hurt people, and when we hurt people in our sinfulness, we keep on hurting people until we repent and change. Repent is change. So lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. Romans chapter 2 tells us the result of that. In our sinfulness, it says, um, Romans 2 verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's about God's righteousness and his judgment that is never, ever wrong. It says in 2 verses 8 and 9, but we are self-seeking. We do not obey the truth, but we obey unrighteousness. And for those of us who do that, there will be wrath and death. But there's salvation in this book. Paul doesn't just leave it at the bad news. Bad news, you better figure it out. Bad news, you better clean yourself up. Bad news, make sure you go to church. It's bad news, but you need Christ. Bad news, without Christ, without something outside of yourself, you are doomed. But good news, Christ has come. Hallelujah, Christ has come. And he has stood on your behalf so that you may be justified. Your sin against this righteous God means death. So in the courtroom of God, you are guilty, guilty, guilty. But you can be justified of that sin, justified of your record by faith. Romans 3 tells us, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It is not by how much we can do it. Not by how much we can clean ourselves up. Instead, it is by faith that has been, and the justification, the forgiveness is imputed to us. It's forgiven. So God's righteousness then is not just a, a cleansing righteousness where he comes in and, and cleans our sin away and now we have a fresh start. If it was the case, guess what? The day I was saved, I would be doomed the next day. Probably the next hour, I would fall into sinfulness because of my own heart. If God just came to wipe you fresh that moment that you came to Christ and asked for forgiveness, and then, okay, here's your fresh start, don't screw it up. You know how many times I would be coming to that altar and coming in, in faith and coming and praying, God, forgive me again, please save me again, hour by hour by hour. It's not just God wiping our slate clean, but instead, Romans 4 tells us, that he actually imputes his righteousness to us. He counts it to us. His perfect righteousness, Christ's perfect life, his perfect death, he accredits to our account. It is he who justifies the ungodly, Romans 4, 5 says. And because of that, Romans 5 tells us we have peace with God. Bad news, we are at war with God. Good news in Christ, by faith, you can be at peace with God. And now that person doesn't just say, all right, I'm good. I got my stamp of approval. Now I can live as I please. If that's the case in anyone's heart, it's false. It's been false. Instead, it leads to sanctification. Romans chapter 6 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We died to sin. We died to its power, its chain on our life. But of course, we are still plagued with sinfulness in our hearts. That's why we still sin. 
but we are not just alive to sin anymore. We are dead to sin, but we are alive to God. Romans 6 says, We are no longer enslaved to sin, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. We are now members, and all of our members of our body are for righteousness. Before, we used to use them for unrighteousness. We were slaves. But now it says in, six, in chapter 6, verse 14, Sin shall have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. It won't have dominion over you. Does it mean you will not sin? Of course not. Not here in this life will there ever be a day where you don't sin. But it will not have dominion over you. It will not rule you. It will not condemn you eternally. Because if you are in Christ, you are set free. Because of Christ, not because you stopped sinning. It's because Christ never sinned and he died on your behalf. That's why you are forgiven. That's why you will see heaven because of Christ. Sin will no have no dominion over you. It can't condemn you anymore, not because you stopped, but because of what Christ has done. But what Christ has done does lead us to sanctification. It does change us. It does chip away at that old sinful self, at the inclinations. Our, our desires are switched from desiring to please ourselves at all costs to I want to please God at all costs, even though I somehow can't because I struggle in sinfulness. I desire to please God at all costs. That's the heart of a Christian. Again, that heart is not perfect. And we all fail. And we all have moments and seasons of utter failure, even in our desire to please God. But we are sanctified. Romans 6, 6, 17 to 19 says, But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves to sin, have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. Having been set free from sin, become slaves of righteousness. And then he says, So this, at this pre present your members as slaves to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. It chisels away at the old man, and it purifies us and makes us new. We want to be more like Christ. We want to represent Christ. And part of that, as we have discovered, is not just individuals, not just you and the mirror. That's not the Christian life. The best way for us to be sanctified is among the people of God who can help correct us and who can, we can actually fail among. And among the people of God, we should there have forgiveness as Christ has forgiven us. Among the very people of God ought to be the most forgiving of environments. Now, you and I know that that's not the case sometimes. Sometimes among the people of God is the most judgmental environment you may ever be in when it should be the most forgiving. This is the place where we ought to be able to confess our sins, tell each other how we failed precisely this week, and not to be judged and looked down upon, but instead to be welcomed and embraced with the message of Christ that you are still welcome here, you are still loved. Yes, you screwed up. We're not denying it. Yes, that is not honoring to God. We don't deny that. But yes, by God's grace, you are forgiven still. Yes, by God's grace, you are welcome still. Yes, by God's grace, I still love you. I still want to stand with you and serve with you. That's the, that's the church. That's what happens when we are transformed. It's interesting when we're brought into the Christian life, sometimes we think so individualistically. Like it's just me and God, and, and we get so trapped in this because we know Jeremiah 17, 9, that says, our heart is deceitful 
It lies to us all the time, either telling us that we are still condemned or we're not worthy or we shouldn't go there because those people are going to judge us or we're not going to be welcomed at the cross. We lie to ourselves all the time. That's why we need the people of God equipped with the gospel of God to say, yes, you screwed up, but there's grace. And there's grace tomorrow. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We need the people of God who say that because they know that in their own lives that they need it. We are all admitting day by day, I need the gospel. I need forgiveness and grace. And so the church ought to be that transforming place where we can be sanctified. Because the only way we're sanctified is by admitting we're wrong. By admitting that there is some... uh, negative thing in us that needs to be chiseled away. It's what we admit. We admit our, our need, and then we are supplied with grace and understanding through the gospel in the people of God. So that's why in, in Romans chapter 12, it talks about us presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice and then going on to talk about serving one another. Chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15 begins to have this outward perspective of of who can I serve? What ambition has God given me that's not just about me and Jesus? It's about his people and it's about the world. It's about a further mission than me. And when you're walking side by side with people who are also on the same trajectory, that they want to glorify God in all things. With one voice, we want to glorify God. Then together, we may be encouraged even though we trip and fall. Imagine 50 people holding one solid metal pipe, wall holding it together, walking, and one person falls. The pipe doesn't fall. Instead, that pipe helps lift that person back up. One person on their own carrying a pipe falls again and again and again, but a a pipe with 50 people holding it is not going to fall, and it's going to be the way they get lifted up and carry on the mission. That's why we ought to strive side by side. In in the faith of the gospel, Philippians 1.17 says, Strive side by side. That's why unity is so important. It's such an important theme, even for Jesus. In John chapter 17, when Jesus was praying specifically for you and for me, he prayed that we would be one as he is one. Him, Jesus, the Son with the Father, and the Father with the Holy Spirit, they are one. They are together. And he prayed that we would be in the same heart, that we would be one together, striving for the glory of God's name. So then we think in that frame, not just individually. We ought to think individually because, man, if we're all failing and we all don't care about our failures, that pipe's going to fall. So we all ought to be thinking about our own sanctification, our walk with God, and where we fail Him. But we do it in community so that we can be reminded and picked up again in grace that we often allow the self-condemnation to come. But of course, Romans 8, 1 slaps that in the face. It says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned. You will never, ever be condemned if you are in Christ Jesus. I need that reminder all the time. And my mind does not take me to Romans 8.1 sometimes. So I need others to tell me, you're not condemned. You're not condemned and you will not be condemned if you are in Christ Jesus. He was condemned for you so that you're not condemned. So you may stand free, forgiven, come again to the throne of grace. So then, where do Romans 14 and 15 fit into this book about God's 
righteousness. God's righteousness that we saw in the law, God's righteousness in, in justifying his people through what Christ has done. God's righteousness then displayed in the people of God and in the election of God's people, chapters 9 through 11. And then from chapter 12 to the rest of the book is all about this righteousness of God displayed. It's in his people, transforming his people. So then we ought to think not just about ourselves when we think about our walk with Christ. We think about what's beyond that. Romans 14 challenges us to think about the differences that we have among the people of God in our own local context, but also globally. Think about the differences. And it just shocks me sometimes to think, you know, how adamant we are in North America about certain things in the church. Like, this is just part of church, and if you don't do that, man, I'm going somewhere else. But just zoom out for a second and think, like, can they even do that in a tribe in Africa? Can they even do that in China? Like, are you saying they're not a church because they can't? You know, do that? So we have to think globally, not just so here and so small. And that's what Paul does. Paul thinks globally. He's thinking far beyond himself. He's thinking about God being glorified even in Spain. God being glorified in those saints in Jerusalem who are suffering. So we see that in chapter 14 is drawing us to that place of unity, putting our differences aside so we can strive together. And then chapter 15 is that that mission, that ambition, that, that glory of God in all that we do together. We're called to be free so that we may serve him, not trapped down by the weight of our sin, but instead recognizing God's righteousness and his perfection and his law and what it has done for us, how it has transformed us, how it is shaping us to be who we ought to be, how we ought to surrender ourselves to that in the care of other people, other people are going to care for you, especially when you can't care for yourself. That's why we need each other. That's why unity is more important than our diversity. Unity is what brings the glory to God's name. And obviously, that doesn't mean we just forget any differences or forget what we may differ on. Romans chapter 14 also teaches us that. That, you know, you ought to have a good reason for your opinions and you can stand in them. doesn't mean you can't teach others. It just means you ought to lay down your opinion for the sake of others when the glory of God, his honor, and their faith is at risk. You don't ever put the faith of another believer at risk. You don't ever put the glory of God at risk. And so you strive with each other locally. But then as Paul encourages us in 15 is globally. I love Paul's missionary journeys. If you ever just even read through the book of Acts, right, to just get a, a real sky view of what Paul accomplished, you think, that guy never took time for himself. He didn't say, oh, well, I just need, you know, a year off. It's incredible. Paul did take time for refreshing. There's no doubt about that. Or else he would not have been able to do what he did. But Paul was not selfish in that. He refreshed so that he could serve others. He refreshed so that he would have enough fuel in his tank for others. And we ought to learn that example from Paul. The implications of this book and these chapters specifically are that when we see who God is and what he expects of his people, we are crushed. But if we only see that and we, do, and we only allow ourselves to see that, we will forever be crushed until we see the gospel. Until we see the fullness of the message. And that's what Paul wanted to deliver to Spain. He wanted to deliver because they knew the crushing news. They knew in their own hearts that 
and that's what chapter 1 tells us, that there's no excuse. No one under the sun can be without excuse. They can look around and see that tree is so intricate. There's no way it was an accident. Let me think more on that. How could this have been? And so people in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a tribe in Africa, they, they have enough evidence to be able to ponder something greater. That's also enough evidence to condemn them. Because if they now worship the tree, they could be condemned. There's no innocent person in a tribe in Africa. There's no innocent person anywhere. And that's why Paul had an ambition to go to Spain. He didn't just say, oh, well, I'll just leave them innocent over there. No, they're not innocent. They are guilty against God. And so we ought to take the gospel to them. So the implications for us too is where are we taking the gospel? Is the gospel transforming us so much that we are not just looking at ourselves, but we are looking to those around us? Thinking, as Paul said earlier in this chapter of chapter 15, is asking others to strive with him in prayer, to, to participate in the ministry. Are we, like Paul looked beyond himself. He, he was not a one-man show. Are, are we trying to be one man and one woman shows? Standing before God saying, look at me. Look what I'm trying to do for you. Or are we, as, as he's designed us to be a part of a family, a part of the body of Christ, a hand cannot say to the foot, I do not need you. We need one another in order to grow, in order to strive, and in order to ultimately glorify God better. So that's why the, the letter ends in this really unique way of, of greeting. And as we'll discover in chapter 16, it goes more even into specific people and how they specifically served God and how they are con, uh, con, commended for that the ways that they served, the ways that they strive to use all that God had given them for his glory. When we look at the book of Romans, we understand the teaching that there, that there is, and we, and we must understand it, or, or else we could be guilty of being too shallow in our faith. That, oh, well, God's not really that angry at my sin, and I can just carry on. Well, no, by no means, it says. God hates sin. Sin condemns people to death. And so we ought to hate sin all the more in our lives, so that when we go to tell other people that you have sin in your life and you ought to hate it, they see it in our eyes. They see it as we fear before the fire of hell. That we, we ourselves know that we would be condemned if it were not for Christ. But if you're not convinced of that, if you think sin is so light and it, it doesn't really offend God, then our gospel message is weak and the glory of God will be weakened so we ought to get the scope of the whole book. It's not just individual. It's not just law. It's not just grace. It's all combined. And then you see how it transforms a person into a community and out to the world, which is exactly the heart of Christ. You see in, great, in the Great Commission, um, Jesus' final words to his disciples as he sends them out, right? Go into all the world, go into all the nations and, and preach the gospel and make disciples of them. Don't just convert people. Don't just try to get another tick on the box. Make them a disciple. Make them follow. Make them learn. And so he says you do that by first, first step of your discipleship is by showing them obedience. You baptize them. First step of obedience. And then you teach them to obey all that God has commanded them. You baptize. It's that public declaration that you identify with Christ. You identify with what he's done for you. He has buried the old man and a new man has arisen. 
That's why you do that first. That's the declaration of your faith. And then you teach them to obey. Jesus himself says, those who are my disciples are the ones who hear my words and do them. So we teach each other to obey. And then it's a global thing. And so even in the Great Commission, that few lines is really packed the book of Romans. It's, there's the nations, there's people who need the gospel transformation. They need to obey the gospel and obey the implications of the gospel. But then they also need to grow, be taught, to learn, to obey, and to do it, not on their own, but in community. That's the book of Romans in a snap. It's all of God's righteousness, and not only as a distant thing, God who's holy up on his throne over there, but instead the God who came, the God who saves, the God who transforms. And it's amazing that, you know, Paul ends this chapter in chapter 15. In the original letter, there wasn't chapters, but he ends this section asking in verse 33, may the God of peace be with you all. He just come out of speaking about unity, peace. Now, we are only at peace with God because of what we learned earlier in the book. We're all, we who were God's enemies are now at peace with him because of the Lord Jesus. And so he, he calls him the God of peace. He's the God who reconciled with you. It's amazing. Amazing grace. And he asks and he prays over this Roman church, may the God of peace be with you all. How will we know if the God of peace is with us? We'll know it when we have understood the gospel, when we've embraced the gospel, and then when we see that lived out in community of peace. That we set our own opinions aside if it means that a brother or sister is encouraged in the faith. That's what the God of peace does in you and in me. He transforms us to be those who are those who reconcile with others and preach a gospel of reconciliation. So Paul's praying for this church. As I will pray for our church, may the God of peace be with you all. Let me pray. Well, God, we love your word. We love it because we discover who you are in your greatness, in your perfection. We discover your holiness. We discover that we have sinned against you. And yet, you in your love and your mercy have made a way for us to be reconciled and forgiven. That we would have peace with you because of what you have done. Oh God, we are so grateful. May we be those then who not just know the teaching and the doctrine of our faith, but out of that doctrine that we would transform us to be people who then live at peace in the family of God so that together we may better serve you, serve our community, serve the world around us who so desperately needs you. May you, O oh God of peace, be with us all. In Christ's name, amen.